Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to another scintillating edition of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Old, joined this week with Shaheen Khan. Where's Henry? No Henry. Where is he? I think Henry is evaluating and inspecting the new castle that he's building. Can you, well, let me ask you this. How little do you want to be that general contractor right now? (laughs) Well, I think if you have your act together and everything planned properly, you'd probably enjoy working with Henry. Oh, I think that's so wrong. (laughs) I think that is just totally wrong. He's out there with a micrometer. (laughs) And a microscope. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Looking at the quality of the concrete, the footings, the position. I think they have poured concrete at this point, from what I I know. And they should get ready to pour it again (laughs) or to grind some of it off. Henry's a little exacting when it comes to things like this. And for good reason. We applaud him for that. We do, but I would like to be down there in a lawn chair with a drink, just watching those interactions. <laughs> I think that would be huge I fun. think we need a Henry cam. That would be even better. Just And just 24-7, watch what goes on with him, driving out there again at night to take a look and make sure his calculations were correct. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to live, live tweet it or live blog it. <laughs> Be very good. But, but. we're going to soldier on because we have got a fantastic guest. We do. It is Callista Redmond, who is CEO of the RISC V Foundation. Very exciting thing. Very disruptive technology, open source instruction set architecture. Yes. Since they came on the scene, other chips have also open sourced or tried to pay homage to the open source goodness. This is very important in this one part of the business that has not really adopted open source until now. And I know I have a lot of questions teed up. I'm sure you do, too. Why don't we just roll into that segment then? Let's do it. So we would like to welcome our guest, Callista Redman. She is the CEO of Risk 5 which is pretty cool. Very cool technology. It's something that we've talked about a few times on the show. Very disruptive. Very disruptive. And a lot of it in reference to the European Exascale projects. And not limited to it by any means. No, no, no. So Callista, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Us and our 15 listeners are going to be very interested in hearing what you have to say. And I guess the first question is, just to get us all on the same level, what is RISC-V? So RISC-V is an instruction set architecture that was cultivated at Berkeley in the early 2000s, came up to edition five, and they decided, you know what, wow, this is really something compelling and game-changing. It's a new instruction set that they decided to release in an open source fashion so that the broader set of not only academia, but also commercial users could adopt and build upon. And this sort of had come at an inflection point where license models were not serving needs as well as workloads were demanding a higher level of customization. So RISC-V was born in academia, quickly moved over into industry, 
And in 2015, we formed the Risk Five Foundation to be the official community to bring together the many, many stakeholders in this space, from the chip designers to tools and resources, software, end users, individuals, students, academia, research, government agencies, other nonprofits, a full set of stakeholders. And so we launched then, we've been growing very fast ever since and are seeing a great traction around the world. So how is it being used today? So it's been deployed and leveraged from microcontrollers to smartwatches to SOCs to be used in scale-out computing. Everything from the smallest of embedded designs in IoT through large-scale data centers. And uh, we've seen growing investment and interest around cultivating RISC-V at national levels. India is a great example there where they've invested like $45 million into the uh, Shakti project to cultivate their own Mm. RISC-V processor. In fact, times six, they're doing that six times over. We're seeing countries advancing and and regions advancing. You know, as you mentioned, in the the European Processor Initiative has taken on RISC-V to help with acceleration in HPC. Yeah, exactly. Open source usually has meant software until now. How are you applying it to hardware? You know, once upon a very long time ago, open source and the sharing economy and all of that meant everyone brings your best talents and resources to the community so that we can all together thrive and have deep sets of expertise rather than all of us being generalists. And open source really took off as a technical notion 20, maybe 50 years ago, I mean, if you go back to some of the documentation around mainframes Mm. with Share, there's a long legacy of technologists working together and collaborating to progress the state of the art so that we all can learn from one another and build and progress the state of the art. So open source software really took off and it was their great progress and traction in the community that brought the ideology over to open source hardware. This is open source hardware play number four for me. As you might recall in our past lives crossing, I've done everything from uh, networking to power to mainframe prior to coming to risk five. The Rebel Alliance. Uh, you know, open source in hardware has been around for more than 10 years. Uh, and we're continuing that traction. You know, it's mm. it's different though, right? I mean, hardware is not like software and and not not to tell my software friends they've got it easy, but you know what? They get to continuously <laughs> develop, they get to fix things once it ships. Yeah, it can be good enough and they and they can fix it later. But you don't get to do that in hardware. No. Hardware is... You don't get to phase it in. No, no. Once it once it uh, goes into production and ships, it's done. It's sort of, you know, as painful as recalling a set of cars for their airbags. You, you don't want to call the hardware back in to get it fixed. No. So we need to freeze things, and that makes it a little different. So what is the business model then? How does the Risk Foundation and its community actually make money? Different from other instruction set architectures or other ways of going about this, the foundation has put the ISA or the instruction set architecture out there in the open for anyone to leverage. And that enables many companies, similar to open source software, to build on top of and around the open source elements. And so in this case, we have a base ISA, which is very 
uh, lightweight by comparison to other options. And, uh, you know, it's like 47 instructions. And by keeping it small, it becomes easier to work with and it allows for kind of modular design, which is great for the wide variety and growing number of workloads that are demanding custom processing. Uh, so with that, members of our community can grow their business on top of and around the open source elements. There's five foundation itself is like most open source foundations or projects. And we drive programming that supports the entire community. And we've got like six different programs that we're driving right now. And we drive that based on member annual dues. So you pay dues into the organization that allows you to participate in and help drive the technical progress going on. In return, we give you incredible visibility tools and resources to help commercialize your offering. How do you keep this all compatible if it's open source and people can extend it at will? I know a lot of folks out there, they're going to say 47 instructions. Boy, I can add some more instructions to this. This will be awesome. Right. We kept it small and simple by design, right? So that as you go after specific workloads and implementations, we can provide a collective of uh, shared or open extensions that you can pile on top of that for your implementation. Or yes, you can go build your own. And that causes fragmentation in some ways, depending on the direction you take it. Yeah. Or you can go build your own and bring it back and contribute it to the open source world so that everybody does it your way. You know, so there, there are kind of two paths there, right? If you decide that your proprietary extension is really the bread and butter of your company and that's how you're going to make money, okay, that's a business model. Or you can decide that you're going to make your money based on the workloads and implementation actualization that you see from there. So there are a couple of ways that folks can take it. Our aim is to alleviate the risks of fragmentation and to provide incentives to use an open model throughout that stack, throughout those extensions. And to that end, we've got uh, 20 different technical work groups and committees that are working on uh, various extensions, sets of software, tools, resources, all the things that you need so that you don't need to go build your own. And as quickly as we can progress that, the less tempting it is to take your own path off to the side. Makes sense. That makes sense. Now, where is the strongest interest coming from right now? We're really seeing it all over the place. We've had tremendous geographic interest. Uh, North America took the lead there. Uh, we're seeing growing interest, as I mentioned, in places like India and, and China and Japan, where there are strong, you know, kind of a strong momentum behind having a, a local invented, yeah. produced and consumed type of technical agenda. And that just, you know, that's not constrained just to the processor, right? But that's been going on for years. Yeah. But something like an open source starting point like RISC-V is really helpful to, you know, fulfill those goals. But doesn't ARM fulfill that as well? So, you know, if you look at the various types of architectures out there, there are some that are very closed, very proprietary, that you're kind of beholden to the owner of that ISA to fulfill your, your end goals, to, to get to that custom place, right? Mm -hmm. There are a couple of architectures in the middle 
where there are some levels of flexibility, some degrees of freedom, but there's still a, a, a bit of a pay-as-you-go plan, or maybe they look open, but they still require uh, deep dependencies on kind of the mothership there. Mm-hmm. Risk five is really on kind of the far end of super open and super flexible to accomplishing those types of goals, you know, whether you call it an indigenous agenda or a, uh, a local agenda of some kind. But uh, it allows you the greatest degree of, of freedom. freedom for innovation. Yeah. Now, doesn't that also have the flip side, which is you're enabling competition internationally by removing barriers that some of the local players have worked hard to overcome? How does open source work out in that model, given that some of these topics are becoming internationally significant? I'm trying to get to the core of your question there. So I guess we're creating a more open market and more level playing field uh, for participation in that space. I also think that we're inspiring a stronger degree of collaboration. The base open source ideology is let's get rid of the easy stuff that we all need to build on so that we can get to the super smart stuff or the very... Um, compelling or differentiating stuff that is going to help us as a nation, us as a company, us as a, you know, name your stakeholder, move forward in our space. Very well. Yeah. It's interesting the way that you're positioning it. My exposure to RISC-5 was through presentations from the Europeans, and they're talking about it as a accelerator, as a homegrown accelerator. Mm-hmm. But I guess it can also be a general purpose CPU. Do you see? Absolutely. Yep. And there have been uh, several announcements to that end. I guess I'm wondering how this could be sort of a jack of all trades, be a very good accelerator. There's a lot of great accelerator competition out there and yet be a uh, great general purpose CPU at the same time. I think that's the flexibility that you're enabled by having the root of the uh, technology in the ISA. So you can build on that to attain performance dimensions, energy consumption dimensions, and and other aspects that could put it in IoT versus a server versus a controller in storage or acceleration or, or other aspects of your larger SOC design. It's not that the ISA itself is constrained to a particular pocket. It certainly is not. You can absolutely take that in many directions and dimensions. Exactly. But that's a good segue into servers. When can we expect to see servers? Yeah. Yeah. When? 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 So, <laughs> so, so Risk Five is already being uh, being shipped, and uh, you, you find it in Nvidia's uh, GPUs. They've made announcements. Western Digital and Storage. We had announcements over the summer from Alibaba and bringing this into their servers, and we're continuing to see more of those announcements. Specific ship dates, I don't have top of mind right now. Uh, that would be, you know, amongst our. 360 some members that we have. What about ecosystem? The only successful new processor I can think of since the 90s has been the GPU, and that's because they were maniacal about building an ecosystem first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're getting pretty maniacal on that front as well. You know, when we started this nearly five years ago as a foundation, we were very focused on the hardware base 
elements, base building blocks. Mm-hmm. And we are now putting together and acting on a larger software ecosystem strategy. I think software is kind of what you might be pointing to. But, you know, there's also the tools and other resources, uh, design, verification, all of that. Those are well underway already. We're now on the software strategy and putting together models by which we will have, you know, proposed stacks, proposed vertical stacks of kind of best practice and open implementations. Because there are so many workloads that you could envision for RISC-V, it would be short-sighted to offer only one path. And so we are going to be offering numerous, and we've got those strategies nearly inked, but we are beginning to put those in motion now as well. You're kind of lucky that our pal Henry Newman isn't here because he would be going after you like a like a rabid badger on the specifics on that. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of like, do you know Henry? I, I think we've crossed paths a couple times. He's yeah. like Ben Stein without the rugged good looks and charisma. <laughs> a reference which is completely lost on him because he stopped watching TV about 1979. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. We've got a lot of great thought leaders that are coalescing on the uh, software strategy. And that's from some of the the big names in open source software at the operating system level to longstanding systems providers and others who have been in this space for a long time and have seen some of the twists and turns that other strategies have made. So we're learning from all of that. And we've got a lot of great minds that have been uh, diving deep on that. So are you going to have an applications catalog? And if you do, how many are there in there now? Man, you know, I want, I want to have a, an Amazon-style marketplace, right? That's, that's sort of my dream. And by the way, not so that I can take a cut. That's, that's not very open sourcey. But rather that we have, you know, a marketplace that can quickly connect the inquiry to the opportunity and, and where you can find a plethora of these things. We've recently relaunched that area of our site, and you can find a lot of tools and resources on there today. You don't have a full set of software, uh, as you might imagine there. But what we're finding is that many of the open source Linux uh, types of software are already starting to put together their RISC-V compatible versions. And so part of our goal then is to make sure you can find those uh, easily. That's the thing about for instance, the HPC market that's unique, if you can give them a compelling performance and price case, they will do what it takes to make the software work and give it back to the community as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and HPC is, has long been a, a highly collaborative community. Um, yeah, and it's not just because folks move around within a small field and they all know each other. It really is oh, yeah, one big family do. reunion when you go to those events. I love it. <laughs> so, but, you know, similar to, to HPC, we look for those similarities in those areas where we can help multiple of our members leapfrog ahead. So let me ask you about HPC. How do you see that market? Do you see it as being basically overtaken by AI? Or do you see it as a foundation for AI and therefore a need to double down? Well, how do you see that connection between AI and HPC? Yeah, it's and a then great. We'll tell you, and, then, and then we'll tell you the right way to see it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say you you have a, a, a longer uh, and more informed view of that than I do. But from my armchair, I would say that HPC and AI and 
and many things around those spaces. Sure. All the various elements. We have to be careful not to water anything, any of that down to a buzzword or a simple definition. HPC and AI are exceptionally close cousins yes. in my estimation. But you look at HPC and you you're often think of it as, oh, the supercomputing top 500. It's more than that. It's, oh, yeah. it's HPC for industrial, for automotive, for you know the very many implementations of AI that, uh, that we're seeking to accomplish to, to make all of our businesses better, smarter, faster. I think HPC as a word has carried a weight that perhaps is difficult to continue to carry forward into the, kind of the new paradigms of computing that we're seeing. Yeah, perfect. Well said. Well, does that mean you agree with me or do you have another view on, you know, the intersect of HPC and AI? I have a bias in favor of thinking the only part of AI that's actually working is the part that's computationally intensive right. and it's essentially HPC, albeit perhaps in lower precision, which yeah. I think is incidental. I would agree with that. So I don't know if I have universal agreement on my side. There are people who think AI is not a subset of HPC because it does a lot more. I think that the parts of it that I'm interested in are a subset. I would agree with that, that HPC is more the superset of computing that is compute intensive or memory intensive or some sort of highly intensive piece of work that needs to be done well, needs to be done quickly. And the other thing is that we are still at the very early days of AI. Applications aren't quite there. The amount of data that is needed is not universally there. The legal framework is not there. No. The ethical framework is not there. So I think all of that is ripe for a little bit of reality check. Well, I was going to say the thing that I have been seeing almost universally in talking to traditional HPC shops, national labs, et cetera, is that they're going to be using AI to inform their simulation workloads. Right. And that's one use case. Yeah. So you have the national labs on one end, you have oil and gas exploration on another dimension. You've got like, which ads should I serve you and clutter your screen with on another dimension? (laughs) You have chemotherapy down on another dimension. I mean, geez, Louise, Dan, you point to exactly the heart of this when you think about all the various levers that you're pulling and pushing to drive to, you know, what is the right computing model for me? And do you want to call it AI or HPC? At some point, doesn't even matter. No. Because you're really driving at not just a technical decision. I mean, I would assert, I have zero data to back this up, but I would assert that your decision is 50% technical, can it do what I need to do? And 50%, all the other pieces of the business case from financial to ecosystem to supply chain to possible geopolitical whatever noise, the dimensions of decision-making are only half, I would say, half technical. Yeah. But it would take someone smart to help me measure that out. I do believe there's research that is coming that I hope will corroborate what you're saying. Oh, that would be great. I think that's about right. There's so many biases out there in decision-making that I would say it's maybe less than 50% technical. Okay. All right. So will you be at SC19? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not going to make it to Aww. SC19. I've been on the road tremendously, and I'm not saying I won't be there because <laughs> I'll be home. I'm certainly not home anymore. I just got back from uh, doing Boy. eight conferences in two weeks that range from all over Europe to Tokyo. Oh. And I'm about to take off. I'm going to head to China and then 
I've got China twice and also our big summit that's coming up in December in San Jose. So I hope I see you guys there. Our calendar of face-to-face interactions is absolutely off the charts. I'm going to have to redo my travel budget for next year But at the rate and pace that we're going. We're at so many conferences and so many silicon spaces. I do think you're going to see some of our members at SC19. I hope that they speak up loudly on what's going on in RISC-V. We certainly have deep engagement with the European Processor Initiative folks and, and across Europe, in fact. Yes. I would tip the hand and say that we're going even deeper in Europe. In fact, we are uh, moving our incorporation to uh, Switzerland. Ah, Uh, We're in the process of doing that. I think that will kind of alleviate some of the concerns out there on geopolitical disruption. It is not a, a realized concern today because we are in the open source and that has uh, long been protected by export control in the U.S. But there are nations and companies who have been sort of you know, hesitating a bit. And this is sure to see that things go even uh, further faster. So this is also a major assertion of you as a global entity. Then. Well, and, and, you know, we're a global entity today. We're just... Uh, changing our home base a little bit. And in the process, we're doing a few other things to become even more open sourcey. Mm-hmm. That's a technical sure. term. We're going to improve our governance model. We're uh, leveling up on our membership structure and allowing uh, stronger representation across our members in some of the leadership capacities. So, you know, we're really taking the entire organization from startup phase to mainstream through a lot of the different things that we're doing. Very good. Very good progress. Very interesting. Well, we're going to be doing a hopefully, we believe, a live show at SC19, and maybe we'll try and rope one of your partners in to give us an update. Oh, that would be great. I'm sure they would love that, and I'm sorry to miss it. I love SC. Well, it is like a big family reunion. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that is that is one of the, one of the uh, the better conferences that I've gotten to attend in my past life, so. Old home week. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be fun. Every Sunday before the show starts, we have a gathering that we fondly call the Dead Architecture Society. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I hope I hope that you don't put Risk Five up there. Well, I was just gonna say, it doesn't look like you're gonna be there no, anytime soon. No, but if you know some people that had some stuff to do with MIPS, they're welcome. Um, <laughs> are you Are you calling oh, MIPS dead now? Or? I I don't, but he does. Yeah. It's maybe having a dead cat bounce. <laughs> that sounds disgusting. <laughs> so that's the old stock market term that if you drop a dead cat from a high enough height, it will bounce at the bottom. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. Well, this has been great. We have really enjoyed having you. We want to stay in the loop, anything going on. So you're welcome back anytime. Do you have any questions or comments about us before you leave? It's super fun to catch up with you guys. I'm very excited to see the progress that RISC-V is making in the HPC space. We've got a lot of great folks that are pushing things forward in the community. So it was. I really appreciate the time with you today. And hopefully, uh, I think you said you have 15 listeners. Hopefully, hopefully there are a few more that catch this particular episode. We could bounce up by two or three with this episode. I don't want to make any promises though, but it well, could happen. Hey, let me just extend the invitation for anyone to tap into the discussion on Twitter or LinkedIn or anywhere else where the RISC-V voice is getting louder and louder every day. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Callista. We'll talk to you soon. 
Thank you. Thank you, Calista. See you later. Boy, we sure learned a lot in that interview, didn't we? Yeah, that was a great session. I thought that there were several significant points in that conversation. What grabbed you? I like the idea that they're working on really promoting that ecosystem. That is so critical to the success of this. It totally is, yeah. Applications really win and lose the technologies. I also thought that their incorporation in Switzerland was interesting, and it was going to give them a decidedly global flavor. Yes. I just think that most big technology companies are based in the U.S., and that's the norm. So when one isn't, it sort of stands out, and that's interesting. It does, and it's going to give them a more open international flavor, as you say, although could just be the perception. Yes. But that counts. That's important. Exactly, exactly. I I think they could do anything they would do there here too, but just being in a different time zone gives you a different flavor. Yeah. Geneva is lovely. Yes, very much. If they pick Geneva. Could be Zurich too, though, but beautiful place. So very good. No, we don't Um, have Henry, so... We don't. We can stay online one more week. We can. We don't have Henry's Armageddon report today. But what we do have, as always, as you can hear, the catch of the week. Catch of the week. Yes, we do. What do you got, Shaheen? Well, I do like to go first because I got a good one. I got a good one. So the article's uh, title is Computer Historians Crack Passwords of Unix's Early Pioneers. Hmm. So it turns out that a certain Lee Newkirchen, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, recovered a BSD version 3 source tree for Unix and posted about it on the Unix Heritage Society mailing list and also revealed that she was able to crack many of the weak passwords were used at the time by the equally weak hashing algorithms of those days. I mean, I think that was just a step above rotation 13, perhaps. But uh, as a result, we are now aware of the passwords that some of the greats of this space have used in their in their past lives. Uh, so Dennis Ritchie's was DMAC, D-M-A-C. <laughs> Eric Schmidt's was Wendy, who was his wife. I hope he's not still using that or else we may have... Carringhens was a very good one. Slash dot comma slash dot comma. <laughs> oh, wow. And Ken Thompson's is the one I like best, which is a chess move in descriptive notation, and that's advancing the queen pawn two spaces from two to row four. But then, interestingly, he has an exclamation point next to it, which typically means it really was a great move and a surprising one, even though this seems like an opener move that is relatively standard. So that's pretty cool. That is very cool. But um, how long did it take him to crack those? The way I read it, they tried it some years ago, and it was just taking too long. I'm reading it, and it says that the BSD3 used decrypt for password hashing, which limited passwords to eight characters, salted with 12 bits of entropy. Hmm. The decrypt is so weak, it says, that one of his company's 10 GPU in-manus appliances at about 32K price could do it in... uh, about 14 and a half billion guesses per second. Mm-hmm. And it took less than 10 hours. Wow. And even less time using cracking tools, such as wordless masks and mangling rules. So that means that the site can crack a 
decrypt hash for as little as a hundred bucks. Hmm. But I think you were saying that the hashing algorithms were not all that far advanced from what, what was that? Rotate 13? <laughs> of course, we've come a long way and current passwords are way, way more complicated. And even this took such a long time. So yeah, I thought, I don't think we need to worry yet, but Time marches on, and it shows that your passwords better stand the test of time. Well, not so fast on that, Shaheen, <laughs> because my catch of the week talks about how much time we may have left. <laughs> the European Space Agency has discovered an asteroid called 2019 SU3, which has a non-zero chance of colliding with the Earth in 70 years. The exact date would be September 16th, 2084. Wow. Yeah, wow. There's a, actually, I found there's a whole risk list that uh, we're going to have the story uh, on our webpage, but you click from that to the entire risk list and scare yourself silly. Well, at least we've got some lead time on this one. I heard about this other asteroid that passed by recently, and they didn't notice it until 24 hours before it was going to pass by. Yeah, what's up with that? That is not near enough time to get Bruce Willis and his guys up in space. <laughs> Or point your laser guns to it and yeah. incinerate it before it hits. That doesn't even give us the lead time to sign up the main actors. And apparently that passed by closer to us than the moon is? Is that true? I believe it did. I mean, how could we like not hear about that? How come sirens didn't go How could we didn't see it just looking out? I mean, just looking up at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big planet. It probably went on the other side. But somebody should have seen well, it, yeah. right? We've got all these... Uh, telescopes and stuff. Come on, you guys with telescopes. Get on the ball. <laughs> uh, this one is going to come within 73,000 miles. Now that's still pretty close. In, uh... I believe the diameter of the Earth or the, the circumference of the Earth is 24,000 miles, I believe. Maybe 25. In cosmological space, that's pretty small. Yeah. That's a very, that's a hit or a very close miss in cosmological terms. So, well, on that uplifting note, on that uplifting note, let's just keep in mind and mark your calendar for September 16th, 2084. I'll give you updates maybe every five years or so. That's a great until idea. Until then. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on it. And with that, let's go ahead and call this an episode of Radio Free HPC. Thank all of you out there for listening. And we'll be back with more compelling and scintillating content for you soon. Boom. Awesome. Okay, then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening.